This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Justin Janice, author of the poetry collection, How to Be Better by Being Worse. You know, there's so many horrible things that have happened to all of us that I'm still not ready to write about. I'm kind of amazed, honestly, when I look at it, that I ever really found the strength to do it that day. We'll be back with Justin Janice in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Justin Janice, whose debut poetry collection, How to Be Better by Being Worse, won the A. Poulin Jr. Poetry Prize. 
Janice grew up in rural southeast Texas and was the first in his family to attend college. He graduated from Yale University and studied poetry at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Janice is currently completing his Ph.D. in creative writing and literature at the University of Houston. He was the editor-in-chief of Gulf Coast, a journal of literature and fine arts, and his work has been featured in Best New Poets, New Ohio Review, Yale Review, and the Southeast Review, among others. His poetry collection, How to Be Better by Being Worse, is written in four sections and features poems about Janice's family, sexuality, upbringing, and sense of self. They are self-reflective and vulnerable and modulate between flippant and sincerity as they subvert and question the rules we live by. We began with Justin Janice explaining how the title is a play on self-help books. How to Be Better by Being Worse is the title of a poem in the collection. So I did that thing I think a lot of people do when they're sort of looking for a title. You know, can I borrow a phrase or can I borrow a title from the poem? And so that's really how I settled on the name of the whole collection. I guess that maybe that poem in particular is, uh, you know, kind of playing with the list of advice. It's sort of in the imperative, right? Sort of telling you what to do, what not to do. I think I settled on it as a, as a good title because uh, partly is, I think it establishes the right tone, you know, in the sense that it's like, well, how to be better by being worse. We've just sort of, you know, we took one step forward and then one step back, you know, into this kind of contradictory. I think, was it Jeffrey Eugenity said that all wisdom ends in paradox, you know? And I, I remember reading that or hearing that and thinking, oh, that's so true because how many times does somebody kind of give you advice, you know, and it's just sort of some old, you know, sort of idiom or maxim or something. And it would work. I mean, it's it's not untrue. You know, what goes around comes around or something like that. But then it's just not really sufficient either, you know, at least not for me, for the experiences that I've had. I can't just apply that everywhere, but sometimes it feels like you can. And so I think maybe that's part of really what I'm playing with and dealing with in the book is how do we take wisdom, you know, or uh, any kind of expression of sort of how to live? How do we take that from someone else and apply it to our own lives? Is that even a good idea? Is there another source of, uh, of guidance that we could find? You know, does it come from within or does it come from family or does it come from literature itself. I mean, these are still, I think, open questions that the book's not necessarily going to answer for anyone, but I'm also not out to attack the uh, the genre of self-help. I mean, I think if I wanted to, I don't think that a, a book of poems is really going to, you know, <laughs> put a dent in their profit margins. I think they could probably withstand it, but um, because I, I kind of, to some extent, take it seriously. Like so many things, I maybe approach it from a kind of ironic or, you know, sardonic or humorous sort of, you know, point of view, but I don't really write any about anything or no poems in this book I would consider to be just purely playful. You know, I'm, I'm serious as well. Back to the title poem, which I think what I was getting at in that poem was something I sort of came to rather painfully, which was that 
there's nothing that you can do to make somebody love you more or less than they already do. And I think that's good news, you know, if you're loved, because you could really sort of mess up. And I don't think they're going to love you any more or any less. And um, it's also a little scary. I've had to reject people's love that I didn't want. It's a kind of madness. You know, you can't exactly reason with them. You know, um, you have to sort of resort to some other kind of, you know, ignoble behavior, you know, to kind of avoid it or get rid of it or protect yourself. Um, and I think it's also just kind of sad, too, you know, and, and maybe also kind of beautiful. I have a great mother, and I know that she loves me in a way that I almost kind of can't, you know, fully grasp. And I know that there's really nothing I could do to make her stop feeling that way about me. I think because you've talked so much about this poem that I would love to ask you to read it. Sure, I'd be happy to. How to be better by being worse. Ban soap. Banish suds. Sweep the dormitory clean of polish. Let dust do what dust does with no opinion from feathers. Invite musk. Be clothed in scandal. Smear and smudge and slander yourself courageous. Fuck courage. Stick your finger in its wet mouth and kiss its salty neck. Slip in as many chicken shit deeds as any deadbeat dad ever did. Forget birthdays. Ruin Christmas. Run people over in conversation. Let them finish. Not one sentence. Let them sit with their own nonsense for a second. Leave them tongue-tied and pent up with unexpressed vexation. Get off the pleasant train to nowhere. Get back on with your most regrettable self. Someone will love you. Someone will still fall madly in front of you. Yeah, so as you're going through this litany of things that you can do to be a little bit worse in life, to maybe stop those instincts to help others, or just basically the idea of not being so so proper, that in the end, someone will still love you, that you'll still be redeemable. I thought that was really interesting. Like, was there something in particular that caused you to come to the page to write this exactly? I mean, I know you were talking so much about self-help and that sort of thing, but this is very specific. You know, that's a good question. I mean, this, a lot of the poems in this book started kind of like halfway, like I, I can still sort of remember, you know, um, what they used to look like. I mean, it gets fuzzier and fuzzier every time I, you know, I see the sort of final version of if that's what this is, but I can only remember as far back as to having like the first four stanzas. And I don't even think I come anywhere near, you know, how to be better by being worse. I, I thought it would be fun, you know, or, or sort of, you know, interesting to myself to kind of keep going with this sort of, instead of saying, you know, brush your teeth, <laughs> take a shower, you know, clean your room, you know, instead to kind of just like invert that. You know, really, I mean, in a way, that's kind of the simple part, right? So, you know, stop worrying about 
how you smell. And then from there, it's just like, okay, well, I, I got stuck, you know, and I put it away, really, because, you know, it, I don't feel like that's poem necessarily. I mean, it, you know, like I said, it was fun. Uh, and, you know, I, I found language to sort of, you know, express that or play with it. And it's, you know, there's some internal rhyme and that kind of stuff. You know, it had a kind of pattern, but um, I knew it wasn't really done. And so I put it away and I kind of forgot about it. And, you know, so many things, you know, I'm sure writers on your podcast have said versions of this. So many things you put away and forget about and never go back to or, or you do go back to it and you just still can't do anything with it, you know. And this was one that was like, I can't really let this go, you know, like, I still like this, this is still working, but like, where do I go with this? And I think what I finally decided was just to like, turn that dial up higher and higher, you know, so like, you, you know, it starts off pretty innocently, you know, like, you don't even really have to be that great, you know, to yourself, like, who does it hurt besides you, That that's you, you're free to do that. But yeah, as you keep going, it's like, well, then why do you have to be a good dad you know like and, and why do you have to be um brave you know and everything that we sort of value you know in in one another you know politely waiting for somebody else to finish talking <laughs> before before you interrupt them and and then just I, I think I just kept finding it you know finding another another rule another idea you know another sort of you know uh type of harm that that you could do and it's like okay well where where is this where is this going you know like is there anything to really say about it and I think I got to the end of it after having had my heart broken by somebody who I really did love but who did not treat me very well and I think that's kind of how I mean it took a while you know after certainly a while after the heartbreak, but in that moment, what I remember from from the madness of of loving them is that I still I couldn't listen to my friends who were like, no, 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 that's that's not okay, you know, um, that's not uh, how somebody you know who you deserve better, you know, like all those things that I think, you know, that's why we have friends, you know, that and family and people to look after us because they they remind us of those things. And I have such a great network, such a great support system and all sorts of resources. And still, I'm lucky that they didn't do anything worse because I was that person, you know, that who still loved them, even after all of that, you know, and I was the one just tripping over myself just to spend more time with them. So I guess that's part of it. You know, when I say there's nothing you can really do to make someone love you any more or any less than they already do. It's because I've been on kind of both sides of it, you know, uh, and I, I don't even think there's really two sides. I think there are all sorts of sides to that. I think the collection as a whole is seems like a very vulnerable act from you to put so much of yourself in there and so much of your your feelings. I, I read it. There's four sections and some I think are more heady and emotional in some sections. I found the poems to be more embodied and we can talk mm-hmm. about that. But I, I'm curious about the vulnerability that I sense, if you think there's an element of truth to that? That's a great question. Absolutely. I, mean, I guess I think of poetry as music, you know, sort of like singing. Uh, my favorite <laughs> singer was Whitney Houston. 
you know, I mean, still is. And, you know, to listen to somebody like Whitney Houston versus maybe somebody who's just like the best singer in church, like, or, or, or maybe like, you know, in a choir or something, you know, there's the singer who is just so technically proficient, right. That all the notes are hitting and it just sounds sort of pure and ethereal and, and, and great. And of course, it you know, depends on the song. And then have Whitney Houston, like, it almost seems like it's killing them. Where does this come from? You know, uh, and I think that, I think I fall in love with that because it, they've pushed it so far. They really have to feel it, you know, in order for it to come across. Or they're just a mastermind, almost criminally good at faking it. You know, and at that point, like, who knows really what the difference is e anymore. Thinking about your word embody, is that the verb we use to describe a poem that is really actually feeling it or moving within that rhythm, I guess, versus a poem that is just technically proficient and is about all of these things, but doesn't sort of fully get there. I think maybe, I think that's a very smart and true way of kind of of, of, you know, holding a poem to, to some kind of standard. What it has the power to do, for sure, is to resonate. I say literally because it's like a, a reverberating sound, you know, pattern language actually does kind of vibrate within our bodies. So let's talk a little bit about the poems specifically. In section one, as I had characterized it, they're, they're very... We're meeting you. The The first poem is called What I'm Into. So we get this introduction of the things that um, you're interested in, the things that excite you. And you you go through and we learn about you dressing up as Adele for Halloween. We learn about some of your heartbreaks. We learn about your sexuality. We learn about your humor and you know, in the poem you read about how to be better by being worse. Um, you mentioned the wig story. You have a a, mm -hmm. uh, a poem entitled Self-Pity that is, it's called Self-Pity and it's coming from a rejection slip, but it's also just so raw in how human we are and how the filament between ourselves and another can never be crossed and just how tender mm -hmm. human connection is. And then you talk about um, going to a string ray petting zoo. So I'm wondering if you mm -hmm. want to choose one poem from this section that we can talk about more. Why don't I read the Stingray Petting Zoo one? I almost never get to read that one. And this is, this happened. Stingray Petting Zoo. I never would have guessed they were so pushy, shoving each other at the edges of their tank as if our outstretched, soap-washed hands could turn them over to face the stars. I think I saw one smirk before it splashed me with a magician's well-rehearsed sleight of fin, wing, cape. What is the world hiding with its moon-dark flank and ciliated underbelly? Now white-knuckled and weakened traffic, I grip the wheel with the same fingertips that caressed the creature's slippery, slick bone, because how can I explain this? It dismissed my fear and intimated a choice. Come, be stung by the wildness of life, or else go on standing there in the plunging temperatures of the cold shoulder you turn to what you think you understand. Most of all, yourself, as you were moments ago in the glass tunnel where the sharks bare their glassy teeth. I've been known to circle the block, having failed to recognize the climbing ivy, shutters, and terracotta shingles of my own house. 
must I pay dearly for my lack of planning? I watch hours of traffic sink like sediment and harden into bedrock. Bladder full, I squirm and curse and try to catch the eye of anyone who'll make room for my immediate exit. A truck driver nearly assists, but I plant my foot on the brake instead, and another window passes me by. Sigh, it's no use. I belong miles below and miles behind the overnight world. Overnight, yes. It is in this way, I am told, I cannot be expected to change. So tell me a little more about writing this. And it it does something that I noticed that some of your poems do, where you travel very far from where you begin to the end. And you, you do, in this poem, you have intimations, you come back, you know, you have the glass of the window of the drivers passing you by. But physically, you know, you're starting in the zoo and you're moving to traffic and into your, like, the space inside of your consciousness. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Here in Houston, I live here now, but this was actually before I moved back here. So this was this was a while back. But it was, uh, we have the aquarium downtown, which is actually a restaurant, but it it's also an aquarium. And they have, uh, you know, what is it, a Ferris wheel. You know, there's a lot of fun things for kids to do. And one is this stingray petting zoo. The only thing is, and someone out there is going to be like, you idiot, you don't know anything about stingrays. But the truth, truth of the matter was, in, you know, it might have been called Ray Petting Zoo. It may not have been the type of stingray, for example, that killed Steve Irwin. But that's what I, that had happened, you know, not that long ago when the poem, uh, you know, when I was writing the poem or, or, or at the aquarium. And so I thought, why is this a thing? Like, you know, I understand going and petting goats and, you know, camels and those, you know, fluffy things. But why are, why are we petting stingrays you know or, or anything like it and um like I said I mean they were they had a personality you know I mean like maybe I'm just not around enough animals to to, to know that you know it's not just dogs and you know cats and you know horses and things that have a kind of temperament or a you know and and, and I think part of it is that you're given these little gross dead like you know, fish minnows or something to give them. So they're kind of, uh, they're, they're aiming for your attention, you know, because you're going to give them a treat. So that's how I kind of get from there. It's just like, well, they're, they're, they're entertaining, you know, even if you don't touch them, I mean, they're, they're, they're splashing and they're kind of, you know, going up to the side of the tank and everything. And they have these sort of cute faces and I'll be honest. I mean, I was, I was partly disgusted, <laughs> you know, I didn't want, like, I, I was also partly afraid and and yet all these kids were you know there doing it. I think it was with my nephew. Of course, they, he he was probably an original version of this poem that he's gotten kind of edited out. Uh, you know, it's like if he can do it, then I can do it. You know, and so it, but then it's like it put me into my body, I guess, but also into my mind. You know, it's like I was at war with myself as to whether, like, why am I, <laughs> why am I so high maintenance or so uptight or, or why am I so afraid of, of all of these, you know, interesting creatures or, or, or maybe, um, you know, this might be my only chance, you know, to pass a stingray. Why, like, why would I, why would I pass it up? Um, 
And so, yeah, at some point I do kind of, you know, interpret what I thought the stingray was saying to me. I mean, the more I try to summarize this poem, I think the sort of funnier and weirder it gets, but, and then I left and I got stuck in traffic. And that's, you know, this, this is a very Houston poem because it has the aquarium downtown and like, you know, that takes up about half of it. And the other half is just being stuck in traffic after that bizarre experience. And, and I think, I think I imagine stingrays living on the ocean floor. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. You know, these were in a tank and they were, they were like, unlike any stingray I'd ever, ever, you know, <laughs> imagined. But I thought of, you know, I think of them sort of living sort of in this underworld, right? And not just in, in it, but at the lowest part of it, you know, on the ocean floor or something. And, uh, and now here I am stuck in traffic and I, I wonder how many Houston poets at some point write a poem about uh, about being stuck in traffic because that is a. Uh, I think there are a lot of poems that, that have their origin in some way of, of being stuck somewhere, you know, whether it be in an elevator or just sort of like stuck at you know your parents' house in Thanksgiving or something because you just you do have to kind of like you don't have those distractions, you know, that that you're used to, and so your mind goes this other place how do I get out of this? You know, it's starting, you know, the, the, uh, the stakes seem to continue to be raised, you know, the longer I sort of go without being able to empty my bladder, you know, and, and then it's like, okay, well look other, so it's, I guess maybe it's sort of a two part poem in the sense that like, when I get to that part where I say, and this was just kind of a discovery, you know, when you, when you think about what a truck driver is, what a delivery person is, they work overnight overnight yes in this way i'm told i i cannot be expected to change i mean that probably what something somebody told me that you can't change overnight you know and, and that's something i think that might be part of that kind of self-help thing right we might say that to someone you know take your time you know grow incrementally you know forgive yourself for not changing too quickly i'm not disagreeing with that but i have changed overnight you know um Things have happened to me in my life where, you know, in the span of one, it may not have literally been at night, but, you know, the next day I was a different person. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know. Uh, and some of those changes just happen. And then I think there's, there's also a way that we can make them happen. And, and I'm not trying to sort of, you know, go up to people and say, like, you can change, everyone can change. You know, I'm preaching the gospel of just sort of immediate change. I mean, that would, I think, be taking it too far but I think that you know that wisdom that we sort of in, inherit that you know uh, you can't be expected to change overnight or you know like all meaningful change sort of happens incrementally and you know slowly I think is um is not true a lot of your poems are very intimate to your life to your feelings to your heartbreak to your sexuality and I'm wondering about writing about that intimacy and if that's, I mean, you talked about how you're very close to your mother and that you are close to your family. Is that hard to bear some of that stuff? I mean, it's different for strangers, but I wonder if that's ever difficult to know people who you're most intimate with in different ways are reading all these maybe revelations about yourself. That's a very good question. I see people 
students of mine or people in class really struggle with that, you know, and really agonize over it. And, and sometimes I don't even really know what it is they're withholding, you know, um, maybe they'll tell me, maybe they won't, but I can feel it, you know, I can tell, like, there's more to this. They just don't want somebody they love to get mad at them for putting it, you know, out there. And um, how did I make my peace with that? You know, how do I, you know, accept that? I don't know, but I guess part of it is that, you know, there are many loyalties that I take very seriously. And the most serious one, I think, is the one to my family. But a, a competing loyalty, or, or maybe also a loyalty, is I think my loyalty to a reader, that sort of mysterious, sort of like, who is that, you know, the other, whatever. And I love, I appreciate writers who take that risk. I mean, their books mean so much to me. And I probably didn't even really notice or think about it until now that I'm sort of kind of going through it myself, really, you know, that 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 they might have really sort of <laughs> ruffled a lot of feathers or, or maybe even had a kind of, you know, um, falling out with someone in their family because of, of what's been represented or what's been sort of included. But I'm so glad that they did, you know, like, I'm sorry. I mean, maybe that's just selfish, but I just think sometimes these things are very hard for a little while, but ultimately, maybe eventually they'll come around and then maybe not. Maybe this, I could be totally naive. I do know, I think it was Tolstoy who said that, you know, as soon as a writer is born into a family, that family is ruined. And, and maybe, it, you know, maybe that how to be better by being worse poem is just a sort of you know, exercise and rationalization for like why I feel confident that like, uh, you know, I can, I can, I can really fuck this up and, and they can't, <laughs> you know, they can be mad, but they, they can't stop loving me. You had mentioned the poem about your brother in prison. And mm -hmm. I was curious, I know if you, if you would read it, it's very long. But I'm just curious mm -hmm. about breaking it down a little bit, or if you just want to talk about it. Absolutely. No, I, I would love to. Uh, so you want me to start by reading it? After visiting my brother in prison. On some level, we all want what he has. Ample time, and not to have to worry over the tide of tasks. Today, my account dropped to negative 30 out of nowhere like the icy air from a freak weather pattern. Someone in Mexico's got my pin number. After hours spent haggling with robot voices, I wonder if that's the real me, splurging on department store handbags and extapa. Look at this road, intent on reminding us of nothing but its roadness, its hard, gravelly grayness with patches of black, gummy asphalt and potholes. Look at this little car, barely capable of getting its back and forth to Huntsville along this road through these woods that echo the industrial pine saw they splash across the floors and key carved counters. Look at her, careworn, frazzled, her restlessness interrupted solely by going to work and getting home, where hopefully someone's thought to put food on the table. Look at me, the likeness of my father when he was at his most unforgivable, always drunk, always angry, always pushing someone around on his bow-legged journey. Poor old man, they say, to the sack of regret he is now. 
My brother gives me tight hugs when I go to see him. I ought to say, go to touch him, to feel the warmth in his cheeks and palms, to feel my bones crack beneath him. Sometimes when he catches me by the shoulders and pulls me toward him, so the foreign smell behind his ears, which must be the smell of inside, is so close it nearly chokes me. I get the feeling he's holding on to the brief scattering of years that passes for childhood, like burying your head in a tree, closing your eyes and counting to 50 or 100, as high as it takes for everyone around you to find a place to hide. So this poem covers so much ground. I mean, you're talking about the sort of freedom that your brother might have that we don't have in our daily lives to have so much time and your own um, bank account, which is slipping beyond be, beyond a zero balance and that maybe there's a crime been committed because um, someone in Mexico has your PIN number. And then you're looking at the road and the the journey to get there in all the pine trees around there. Someone who's at work that day, um, just maybe they're working at a, at a, um, at a gas station or something. I I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. you're getting into your father and we learn about your father and that he's drunk and has been drunk in his life and the idea of regret. And then your brother just hugging you and, what that, how that brings you back to childhood in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if you could talk about writing it, just purely writing it. I mean, this one dates back pretty far, but I, I will, I will admit that uh, this was not something that I wanted to write about because I think that the reasons are probably maybe obvious. I didn't just sort of you know, like, oh, can't wait to write about, you know, all of these things. It was, you know, it was difficult. I, I you know, I was in graduate school. I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and that place is so complicated, I guess. I should just leave it at that. And I was le- leading people to believe that I was a different person than I actually was. I was wearing a kind of persona that I, I think maybe I probably picked up at Yale, you know, because I, I wanted I didn't want anyone there to know who I really was because it was just so different, you know, from, from who they were, you know, I just wanted to kind of fit in. Now I was in a different problem. This has been five years later where it was like, it's just really not cool, you know, <laughs> to be this sort of like smart Ivy League kind of like person who just has it together. I'm not trying to be flippant about this, but <laughs> I, just, I sort of, I think default to that sometimes, but I think they just really thought that probably largely not just to sort of how I was presenting myself, but what I was writing about, you know, I was probably just writing about all kinds of, you know, just sort of things I found interesting, you know, in other words, things that weren't really anywhere near my own experience. And, and I knew that the, the assumption that was being made was that I had not really had a kind of life that was worth writing about. I mean, I'm not blaming anyone, you know, I'm saying that that's what I was projecting but then when I sort of saw it through somebody else's eyes, that that's, that that's all they saw, I thought, oh, no, you have no idea, like, you know, who I am and what I what I could write about, you know. And then it was, I think maybe that in a way kind of addresses your sort of question you mentioned earlier. You know, this was a this was a journey for me to not just 
you know, play it safe. For as long as I would play it safe, I was just going to delay and delay and delay, you know, what I just somewhere knew I really needed to do, which was to talk about sort of like the hardest feelings I've ever felt, you know, and, and about, I, I just always kind of like w- worry about using that word, but yes, that's the subject matter, but it's also the feeling, you know, and, and really I, when I say feeling, I mean, you know, like one of the five senses, like touch, you know, like to actually kind of be there and to, to feel and smell and be in that moment that is just utterly terrible and yet somehow somewhere in the midst of it it's like but you're with your family you know you're there you're like it's easy to just sort of feel I you know I shouldn't say easy but you know it's possible to feel only self-pity you know this could be this could just be a part of the self-pity poem you know in which I'm sort of defending our right to feel sorry for ourselves it does kind of end in this sort of like spooky hide and seek kind of like you know childish image but I hope some element of, it, element of it comes through that I'm actually stunned by what kind of moment that was to be there. And it was one I had many times. So, you know, that's another sort of fictionalized thing. Like, I, you know, it wasn't just one, but, but each time is just like, wow, these are people. These are, you know, these are people we just lock up. Like, like maniacs. Like, not that the people we lock up are maniacs, but the people locking them up, it's like it's like they just have to. We just have to find more people to just sort of like lock up. We have to, <laughs> you know, like you're just like, whoa. You hear about it abstractly, you know, and I don't know how many people. Actually, I know a, a few writers who go and work with, you know, um, inmates in jails and do writing exercises with them. And I, I really admire them for, for doing that because I know how much that means to the people inside. In terms of writing it, I think it it was a lot like probably like that how to be better by being worse one where I got like, you know, two thirds of the way through it in a way kind of circling around and kind of avoiding, you know, what I knew, where I knew I'd have to get. So I just sort of got up, got a glass of wine, came back. I was like, all right, here we go. Let's see if I can do this. You know, there's so many horrible things that have happened to all of us that, you know, we're just never, I'm still not ready to write about. I'm, I'm kind of amazed, honestly, when I look at it, that I ever really found the strength to do it that day and that it didn't just become utterly terrible. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about the collection before we get to the final questions? Just that it's like about breaking the rules. You know, sometimes people ask me that and I was like, oh, you know, it's so hard to answer. You know, what is it about? I just want to take that question seriously with me when still wondering. Yeah, I think it's about breaking the rules. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Absolutely. This poem is by Kay Ryan. And I actually have a little poem in my book that sort of is dedicated to her partly and um, imitates her a little bit. I tried to, but she's sort of inimitable. It's called Coming and Going. And I just want to say one more thing. I'm such like a podcast, sorry, whore is the first word that came to mind. I'm just like, I love podcasts. And I learned of so much poetry through like podcasts that came out through like the Poetry Foundation, you know, and, you know, podcasts from these places were free. So it was just a way to kind of, you know, I think for me, kind of multitask and listen to great poetry uh, that I hadn't had a chance to read yet without spending a lot of money and while also like driving to work. And Kay Ryan 
I was aware of her. I mean, I think she was like poet laureate for a bit. Um, but oh, it wasn't until I heard her read uh, on one of these podcasts. I have I had on NPR they call it a driveway moment. You know, where I was like, I have to hear all of her other ones because I just I just fell in love with it. And uh, this one is actually one I have memorized, but rather than put us through that, I'm just going to read it from the page. Coming and going. There is a recently discovered order, neither sponges nor fishes, which is never at the mercy of conditions. If currents shift, these fleshy zeppelins can reverse directions from inside. Their guts are so easily modified. Coming versus going is therefore not the crisis it is for people who have to scramble to keep anything from showing when we see what we can't see coming, going. Can you read a passage that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yes. Why don't I read it first and then I'll say some things about it. This is uh, Flamingo Sexual. Suddenly aware of two pink bruises blooming on both knees, I vaguely recall the way I threw myself into bed, back of the hand angled at my temple, a countess's swoon. I arise to find my necks out of whack, too many pillows, but I'm freshly in love again with the world that made me part candy part foul, two-thirds feathered boa. I am not your lawn ornament. I am the whole lawn or nothing, St. Augustine with patches of fine fescue. I have shrimp for breakfast, shrimp for lunch. I skip dinner to write letters with feathers dipped in the rosy blood of my enemies, those who told me nobody was ready for a breed like mine. But I'm still standing and will until I can't. I like to think we all carry within us enough fuel for one last blaze of renunciation. Yeah, so it was difficult to write for like three or four reasons. One thing is that it's a concrete poem, you know, like George, what is it, George Herbert's uh, Easter Wings or uh, James Merrill's Christmas Tree. So it's in the shape of a flamingo, you know? And I'd never written a poem like that before. Uh, and I don't think I've really written one since. It's the only one really kind of in there in the collection. And I remember kind of like trying it, you know? And then like painstakingly hitting the space bar and trying to move words around to like get the shape right. And I, I even ended up using, I was pretty proud of this. I don't know if anyone will ever notice, but like I used a comma to kind of represent like that kind of like hooked beak that flamingos have. <laughs> Um, it was also one of the first, it was, it was, so that was difficult to sort of technically, and somebody has told me that like, oh, there's like software that could have done that for you. And I was like, thanks <laughs> telling me now. Uh, it's one of the first poems I, I've written, you know, uh, that like kind of explicitly addresses my sexuality. I think I was afraid to sort of open Pandora's box and really kind of go there. I mean, I, I definitely had, you know, poems that you know, where I'm having a, you know, I'm in a gay relationship or it's like kind of like, you know, sort of, you know, homosexual, you know, activity, <laughs> but, uh, but not really kind of, you know, looking at my sexuality 
the way that I think about it all the time, I just did, hadn't really written about it, you know, and I think maybe because I just, I wanted to get it right and I didn't know it, that I could yet. And I never really written a poem about flamingos before either. Um, flamingos have kind of become like my brand, like, like kind of reluctantly, I guess, but like, like talking to you right now, I'm sitting on a flamingo, a really nice like flamingo pattern of upholstered chair that swivels. I'm like, if I click my mouse, I have like a flamingo mouse that my neighbor gave me. I have like dozens of flamingo print shirts and socks and pins and dish towels, apron. I'm uh, just like looking around. I even have a flamingo turban. And like most of these things I uh, I received as like gifts, usually like like from my mom, like she will, she can't see like a flamingo thing in like a mom catalog and like not get it for me as like wind chimes and like uh, all kinds of things. Like this was all before the poem. So people were always they were like, oh my God, it, like flamingos, flamingos, flamingos. They're like, why haven't you written a flamingo poem? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't. I don't want to, you know? Um, and then finally I just kind of caved and did it. And then uh, one, the other f final thing that really made this difficult to write <laughs> um, was like the, uh, the ending was wrong, you know? Like it just, uh, from a writing level, you know? And that just so happens to be like the foot. So I just kind of like to think of it as when, you know, when I talk about like revision or whatever, like, you know, that's something that I had to, learn how to do and sort of embrace because with poetry especially if you sort of brought up like I was in this kind of like rigorously sort of formal like rhyme schemes and syllable counts and all of that like it's just such a nightmare to try to revise something like that you know so basically I just like cut off its foot uh the one that it's standing on you know because flamingos stand on one foot and I went looking for another one and I just sort of found it that line about a blaze of renunciation a totally different poem a much bigger failure, you know, uh, than this one was, you know, w without a good foot. And I, I put it in there. I was just like, it was, you know, part of the discovery. You know, we talk about writing being a discovery. I think revision is also a kind of discovery because I just, the only thing, thing that really connects it, and maybe I'm sort of, you know, tipping my hand too much here, but I think it's just the word blaze. I'd never thought of a flamingo as something that was actually on fire. You know, and, and I think I was more interested in flamingo sexual, originally, not the literal fire, uh, you know, but the, uh, it's sort of like a portmanteau of flaming homosexual, right? Like, I'm sort of embracing the fact that I'm just flamboyant in, in certain ways, you know, and just, you know, not apologizing for it anymore. People at home probably know that, like, you know, a group of flamingos is called a flamboyance, so there's all sorts of connections there. Where do you write? So before the pandemic, I was 100% a coffee shop, like MacBook kind of writer. Although things would kind of get started, usually while I was doing anything else, you know, like it just never worked if I sat there and tried to write. So, you know, I'd get ideas while walking or driving. You know, that's how I got that one where I'm stuck in traffic. And, you know, somebody gave me the great advice at one point that I, I, I try to do still, but, um, I don't know, I just don't walk as much, but like, you know, keeping a poem in your head for as long as you can before you have to start writing it down. You do that thing where you kind of keep circling back to it, you know, and trying to not, not to lose the part of it that you kind of like while also trying to kind of move forward. 
I think that's something amazing that, you know, poetry can be written without really any writing tools, I think more so than prose. And I'm not the first person to sort of point out that like, you know, the rhythm of walking sort of like right foot, left foot, we, we literally call them feet, you know, and sort of in metrical terms, you know, the iambic foot. So I think that's just a, a, a nice way to kind of get a pattern going and, and a rhythm is just, uh, you know, writing while walking. But right now I'm just kind of, you know, had to become a, you know, proper upright sort of professional writer sitting at a desktop in a chair. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm always so interested in the answers that people give to this question on your podcast. And I have a theory. I, okay. It's probably not going to check out, but it, I think fiction, I think that's a fiction writer question. If you don't mind me saying that, cause like my understanding, I mean, like, like I said, I don't write fiction, but it's like my friends who do write fiction is like, they talk a lot more about sort of like, I'm writing, leave me alone, you know, or like they have a routine or they wake up early or they do things. And I think it's because they just have to kind of put out a lot more and they have to go through all the same sort of like levels of revision and inspiration and that kind of thing. But like, so I can just understand why they would want to get away from that. Cause to me, it sounds miserable, but I've never, and I think poets more often tend to say, Oh, I don't want to get away from writing poetry because po writing poetry is just, it's such an indulgent thing to do. Uh, my friend, Doug Powell, DA Powell says, oh, um, you know, it's just a thinly veiled excuse to lollygag. Like, it's fun, you know? Um, but I will say, I think it was maybe Rachel Kushner in a previous episode of yours said, like, I like, she said that she does, like, house chores. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that's totally what I do. Like, you can tell if I've spent all day writing or not, like, based on how clean my house is. Or if I'm you know, procrastinating the the the, the, the writing that I, I I meant to do that day, like everything will be will be clean. There will you know be no dishes in the sink and that kind of thing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I mean, I've been in writing workshops so long, so it's just been you know a lot of different people have helped me on this. But um, my friend Christine Kwan, and she's a brilliant poet, great writer. Uh, you know, she's been holding my hand this whole time ever since we were undergrads. So, and she's so great because, and I think everybody needs a Christine Kwan <laughs> uh, as a first reader because, you know, I never doubt like her, her, her like love and loyalty and like wanting, you know, the poem to be better, but that doesn't always mean she likes it. And if she doesn't like it, she'll tell me. So just like, you know, brutal honesty backed up by like, you know, just the core of just confident, you know, loyalty is just, it's everything. And I, you know, I don't show every, every single thing that I work on. And I, I try not to be that person who's always sort of like pushing my poetry onto people. Cause I think that's rude, but, uh, you know, she's also one of the only people who will ask me for it. So, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like now I have to really, I have to really make sure this is in good shape because you know, I just can't bear to hear her say how much she doesn't like it. How have you dealt with rejection? What's rejection? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, denial? No, uh, I was an editor of Gulf Coast, you know, literary journal. And yeah, it sounds cheesy, but I mean, to be a writer, you, you really just got to believe in yourself and, and, and never take anything like a rejection letter, you know, that somebody like has a million hundred thousand, yeah, a million hundred thousand things to do and emails to send and just sort of like 
they're looking for the easiest way just to let people know that it's not going to happen. <laughs> and I don't want to sort of, you know, turn this into some kind of like Pollyanna kind of thing, but just be glad that now you know, you know, because like some, one of the most frustrating things is like, it's like kind of being ghosted, you know, is I think for a lot of people so much worse and so much more painful than actually just being, you know, told, you know, like, I don't like you, even though, and we know that, but then we still, you know, ghost people instead of just saying like, hey, I just, I just don't find you like the least bit attractive, <laughs> you know, like it, it sounds harsh, but it's like, okay, well now I know, and now I can find someone else or I can move on with my life. Uh, and so just be glad that you have received a decision, you know, because, you know, if you're, if you're doing it, like, you know, especially if you're starting out, like you've got to kind of like send stuff out all sorts of places. And, you know, um, if you're still kind of waiting to hear back from some place, like that's sometimes a much more complicated place to be in, you know, um, when you're dealing with acceptances. So um, be grateful that you at least got a decision. What is your favorite word? You're going to be mad at me, <laughs> but I've been patiently waiting for this question for like, for like ever because I love etymologies and idioms and dictionaries and like weird spellings and stuff and I'm just always so delighted by like language and like weird things and I'm this I will push on to people you know it's just sort of like a conversation starter here then so I made a list and I'm just gonna go through it quickly because I know I'm cheating but uh just like a list of favorite words I could not decide uh, I have, how many do I have? I have like six. Okay. The first lit, the first word is list in the sonnet by Wyatt, you know, called, it's one of my favorite sonnets, Whoso List to Hunt. In that era, what is it, like 1500, 1600s, like list means wish, you know, so whoso wish to hunt, right, is really what he's saying. And uh, I just think it's kind of funny because like I have like a wish list and it's like, oh, it's like, wish wish you know I don't know that's just the kind of thing that like tickles me uh, I really love the word turn it appears at the end of one of my favorite many of my favorite poems but I, I'll just name one Frank O'Hara's uh meditations in an emergency you know he spits in the lock and the knob turns and you know uh poetry is a is a sort of you know gyre or like a clock or something it's constantly turning it's turning from word to word line to line and like that's built into uh, both the Latin and the Greek. So like the word for poetry in Latin is verse, you know? Uh, and, uh, oh, and by the way, the uh, cover art for my book that Alice Tippett uh, very generously allowed me to use, I didn't even know this when I picked it out of like, you know, so many options she has. The name of it was verse, V-R-S-V-E-R-S-E. -E. So that's uh, Latin for turn, verse means turn. And in Greek, uh, uh, trope, you know, so we get like similes and metaphors. So, you know, trope is, tropos is also Greek for term. So thinking of like poetry is something that's written in verses or written in lines and it uses metaphor. So it's just all turning all the time. Um, real quickly, embarrass. It's a, I almost didn't want to give this away, but I looked up the etymology and it means like halter or it comes from like halter. So when you think about being embarrassed, you're almost sort of like putting a halter on yourself, you know, like in other words, like the animal side of you, the like that part of like the centaur that like sort of does all those embarrassing things like body bodily stuff and, you know, sort of like, you know, uncontrollable emotion. You feel embarrassed 
literally in the sense that you're sort of being sort of haltered or kind of, you know, um, uh, reminded of your sort of animal nature, like your brain is kind of doing that to you. Your sort of ego, you know, in psychoanalytic terms is being like, wait, stop embarrassing yourself, stop acting like a horse, you know? Um, I mentioned attention earlier and how it's not something that we really just automatically do, you know? And that's one of the things that makes teaching so hard and listening so hard. It's the great thing about it is like, you think the attention that sort of TEN part of it comes from like, uh, I think it's Latin, it's like to stretch. You're thinking about like a tendon is something that kind of stretches. And like, I just love thinking about that because like, when you're trying to pay attention, like, what do you do? You kind of like, you might kind of like cut your eyes or if an actor were kind of trying to portray someone paying attention, you would see their eyes sort of narrow, which is basically like the muscles in their face stretching in order to actually bring like the eye, like a little bit closer to the thing that they're looking at. So in other words, they're like stretching toward it with their eyes. And also the poignant, because like poignant is something that I think is like, I probably learned that word in like fifth grade and I like was really proud of it, but I just love what it, how it sounds and how it's spelled and, you know, very French, but also like what it means. I just love poignant things. Okay. And the last one is gubernatorial because like I've been seeing that word like in headlines and in news articles and stuff. And I just don't know how people don't, I don't know why we say that gubernatorial. I think it's just so goofy, you know, to talk about the sort of adjective form of governor. I don't even know how that, how that happened. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the very insightful questions and for keeping a podcast running. I'm a devoted listener. So thank you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Justin Janice, author of the poetry collection, How to Be Better by Being Worse. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Nick Flynn on his poetry collection, I Will Destroy You. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.